0: So, as Adam said, we are getting ready to, to wrap up this series in Joshua, and today we're looking at chapter 22. And this is it's an interesting chapter. Uh, it's tied in with the rest of the book. It's sort of Joshua's kind of last charges to the people of God. And it's sort of his last instructions before, they, before he uh, passes away. And he's, the way Moses encouraged the people, he's encouraging the people to stay devoted to the Lord. And Kind of the main idea today that I'm going after is that because of God's devotion to us, because of God's devotion to his children, we can then be devoted to him, and we can be devoted to one another. So because of his great love for us, it causes us to love him, and it causes us to love the church or the the community around us. And so I, I want to give you a brief Kind of overview of the chapter i 'm not going to read all the verses it' take too long for the sake of your butts on these wooden chairs. Uh, we will uh, just kind of re- recall some of it. so the the tribes of Israel, twelve tribes right, have started to inhabit the land in the promised land right and there comes this this scene here in, the, in joshua 22 where there's these two and a half tribes of Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They come before Joshua, and he, he blesses them and says, okay, go back to the other side of the Jordan where you said you wanted land, which I'll get into some of the history of that in a minute. But they, they go back across. They get ready to cross back over the Jordan River into the land on the other side. And before they do, they build this altar, And if you see at the top of the heading in your Bible, it might say the offensive altar or like the large and in charge altar or something where they build this altar. And what ends up happening is the rest of the tribes of Israel hear about it and they they get ready to go to war. And it's like a Bay of Pigs environment where it escalates to where they're ready to go after each other over this altar. And we're going to look at why that is and what the deal was with that. And it ends up being resolved and they cross back over and they live on the other side of the Jordan. So, those tribes end up becoming called the the Transjordan tribes. They're across the Jordan, and that separates them from the other tribes that remain in the heart of God's promised land. So, why why do they go back to this other side? Why are they not staying with the rest of Israel? Well, if you go back into the book of of Numbers, okay, when Moses was still alive and he's leading the people through the desert, um, in Numbers 32, they're on the other side of the Jordan still, on the If you're looking at the map, they're on the east side. They're in the land of Moab. And while they're there, these two and a half tribes see that the land is good. Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, they see that the land is good there. And they tell Moses, you know what? We want to stay here. We don't want to go over into the promised land. And Moses is like, are you kidding me? Why would you you not do that? Are you going to leave your brothers to go and fight for this land? You're going to stay here and you're going to let them go and do this? And Moses, rightly so, is ticked at them. And they're making a huge mistake. There's no bones about it that they should have decided to stay with God's people in God's promised land, right? So Moses and they come to an agreement that they will go and fight on behalf of the people of Israel. They will leave, you know, women and children and and their goods and everything on the other side of the Jordan. They'll go and fight in the promised land to take it. And then when the fighting is finished, they'll go back over. Which is what we come to here in Joshua 22, we see that these tribes have, they fought well, they have helped Israel sort of uh, move into the land, and now Joshua comes before them, and he blesses them, and he says, okay, go back across. Now you can go back to your, to your uh, wives, and to your kids, and to your livelihoods. Now, the first thing I want to look at here is, is really God's devotion to his people in the midst of their mistake, in the midst of their decision to not go into the promised land. We see God's devotion to them still, his love for them still. And if you look in the beginning of 22, if you have your Bibles, you can take it out. But what we see is Joshua calls these two and a half tribes before him, and he pronounces a blessing over them, which if you see in the Old Testament, this is a big deal, that he would kind of give his blessing to them. And, and, and he says this in uh, verse 8 of chapter 22. He says this to them, Return to your homes with great wealth with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and a great quantity of clothing. And divide with your brothers the plunder from your enemies. Earlier, he's told them to be careful to follow all that the Lord has taught them, all that Moses taught them, what I've taught you. Follow the law of God when you go back over. And he says, go and take this great wealth with you. And I don't know if you see this, but to me, what I see is God's great provision for his people despite their mistakes. Despite willingly choosing to not live in the promised land, we have this great God who still loves his children and says, I will still care for you. Despite choosing to live outside of my promised land, I will still provide for you. And he gives them this, this great wealth and he receives the, the blessing of Joshua. And to me, we talk about this all the time, right? That, that people always think, oh, well, the God of the Old Testament is this, this wrathful, vengeful God, but what I see is despite their mistake and willingly saying, I'm going to go live without you, God says, I love you anyway. And I will still provide for you. And I will still bless you. And, and, and allow you to go and live in this land. And, you know, for me, as a parent, like, if my kids ever say, like, all right, Dad, we don't want this for dinner. And I'm like, fine. Don't eat. Like, that, that's what you get, you know? Is you chose out of this? Then fine, choose out of it. And yet we have a God who provides for his children, who loves his children, despite their mistakes. And, you know, to me... This, this speaks to me, because doesn't it just represent all of us? Like, all of the mistakes that we make through our lives, all of the times that we choose to live outside of God's promises, and yet he still chooses to honor and to be devoted to his children. You know, we live, oftentimes, you know, we live with regret, we live with this, this guilt over things that we've done in the past, and we think, God can't still love me. He can't still uh, be devoted to me. How can he do that if I haven't done this for him? And really what's wrapped up in that is religion. We think, well, I haven't performed well enough. God will not love me. But the reverse of that is, I have performed well enough. He better love me. He better bless me. And really the gospel presents another way. And it's all grace. Whether we've made mistakes or whether we've been great, good Christians, it's all God's grace. It's all the gospel. But there are still consequences, right? Are there still consequences for our bad decisions? We can live in God's blessing, yet there's still consequences, which we see later in this chapter. And it reminded me of a story in my life. Uh, Jess and I had just been married, and I had a 1988 Ford Taurus, which was, it was a great car, okay, despite uh, the, the look of it. So it was very reliable. And we're driving it one day, And I'm coming across the George Washington Bridge, coming out of New York. And we're headed back to our apartment, and the transmission goes on it. And we can't get it out of second gear. It's just, like, it's an automatic. It was stuck in second gear, coming across the bridge, revving the RPM. We get over to this, uh, on the Palisades uh, Parkway, and pull into a rest stop. And there's literally fire dripping out the bottom of the car, because the transmission line had blown. And I'm like... Great! Car's going to burn, burn to the ground right here in front of me. Luckily, it went out. Somebody helped me. Long story short, the car was done. Like, it's toast at this point. It's not going to work anymore. So I call my dad. I'm like, Dad, I need a car. And my dad, God bless him, <laughs> finds this uh, Jeep Wagoneer, which, Jeep Wagoneer, remember the ones with the woody siding from, like, I think there was one in What About Bob? Like, it's this incredible Jeep, right? This didn't have the woody siding. It was ugly. It was an old police vehicle. had shotgun shells in the back. Like, I don't know why we bought it. It was a huge mistake. We didn't consult the Lord. We didn't pray. We just went and we bought this thing. Honest to goodness, we're, I, I had to. I get to my dad's house. He bought it. I had to give him money for it. I get to the house and I had to reach over and open the passenger door from the inside so Jess could get in. And then a couple of days later, I'm going to get the thing registered. I'm driving to the DMV and the window on the driver's side just goes. Shoop, It just falls, I mean, piece of crap. I make this huge mistake, right? So we're living in regret, like, how can we do this? So we go to the Lord, we're like, Lord, we admit it. We did not consult you at all, this was ridiculous, we should not have done this. And we we turn to him and ask for help. And lo and behold, our landlord comes down she's like, hey, my, my co-workers are selling a Honda Civic. Uh, for $1,500, the same price that we bought the Jeep for. Would you guys be interested? And I'm like, yes, I will find another $1,500 somewhere. We buy this car. It lasted forever. It was amazing. But we still live with the consequence of buying this other piece of junk. It took me like three months to sell it. I barely got my money back out of it. But let me tell you something. That has been a life lesson (laughs) ever since then, to, to really consult with the Lord in the midst of emergencies like that. So why do I say this in light of this story? Because we chose outside of God's blessing in that moment. We chose outside of God's provision and went on our own, did our own thing, said we've got a better option, we're going to go pursue this. And yet, when we turn in faith to God, we see that God provided for us. Now, obviously, if you could tell, it was a Honda Civic. Like, this isn't health and wealth gospel where, like, we turn to God and we got a Mercedes. Like, we got a normal car, okay? But the, the point is, despite our mistakes, God still provides for us when we turn to him. And we say, I'll follow you. I will trust you. Which is what we see with these tribes here. They turn to God, despite the fact that they chose out of the promised land. They said, we'll be faithful to you, uh, you know, God. We'll go and fight on behalf of the, the children of Israel, and we're going to go back to this other land, and God still provides for them. And it just speaks to me of God's grace to us. Despite our brokenness and all the mistakes we make, God still loves us. And I was going to cut this for the sake of time. I'm going to say it because I feel like I need to. When we start to grasp God's grace for us and his goodness to us, I think it does two things, at least for me. It allows me to forgive myself for the past and to say, well, if God loves me anyway, I can forget my past. I can can let that go. That's the past. And God loves me now. And I can walk in his grace now. And you know what else it does? And I'm still learning this. It allows me to forgive others. When I really start to grasp what God has done for me, in light of my mistakes, it allows me to have grace for people and their mistakes. Just something to think about this week, or really for the rest of your life, about God's grace towards us and what it means for us and for others. So that's the first thing we see here, is God's devotion to his children despite their mistakes. So then... They start heading back for the Jordan River. They're going to cross over. And in verse, I think it's verse 10, uh, we see that they they come to this land. They're still on the western side, they're still in the promised land. And they come and they build this altar. They build this giant replica of the altar that's being made for the tabernacle. And Israel hears about it, and they freak out. They're like, we're going to go to war. And they they rally themselves together at Shiloh, where the tabernacle is, and they say, we're going to go, and we're going to fight these guys. Now, what the heck is going on? We'll look at this. If you look in Deuteronomy 12, this is why they get so upset. Because they were right to be upset about this. They were right to come after these tribes for this. In Deuteronomy 12, God is instructing through Moses, he's instructing the people on what worship is going to look like in the promised land. They're on the other side of the Jordan still. They haven't gone in yet, and God says through Moses, this is what worship is going to look like. If you look, in, there's just scattered verses in in the beginning of chapter 12 of Deuteronomy. Verse 4, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Whose ways? Well, the way everybody else was in the land. They were worshiping God all over the place with, uh, you know, these poles they would worship and these idols they would worship. And he says you're not to worship the way that they do. You're supposed to destroy those things. In verse 8, he says, you're not to do as we do here today. Wandering around the desert, everyone as he sees fit. Not to do as you see fit. There's going to be a structure. There's going to be a program in place. Verse 11, he says, and in the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you are bring everything I command you. Or In verse 13, listen to this. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, and there observe everything I command you. So God is setting up corporate worship in one place, back in Deuteronomy. He says, we're going to set up a tabernacle, eventually the temple, and that is where you are to come and worship God, in the middle of sort of the sanctuary of the promised land. So Israel knows this, and they're finally trying to get it right. In their midst is sin, and they're finally trying to get it right, and they identify it, and they say, okay, we're going to go after it. We're going to destroy it, and what's fascinating to me is is how they decide to handle this. They decide to go to war, which we've talked about this multiple times at this point through Joshua. That that God used Israel to bring about judgment. So I, I'm not asking that question. What I find fascinating is who they send. They send this guy Phineas, which if you have kids, this is this is not cute Phineas and Ferb Phineas. Like this is a bad dude. Okay. Phineas is the, priest of the, uh, the, the, the son of the high priest. So he's also in the priestly line. And they send Phineas and ten tribal leaders. And they're going to go and they're going to confront these two and a half tribes. Now here's what's fascinating to me about Phineas. He has a history. I think it's, uh, it's back in, in numbers somewhere. Uh, I forget where at the moment. Uh, numbers 25, actually. Yeah, if you look at Numbers 25, there's this story with Phineas that's amazing to me. The children of Israel, Moses is still alive, they're wandering around in the desert, and it says that the children of Israel started intermarrying with the people around them, which God had told them not to do, because they would end up worshipping what these other people were worshipping, their idols. And they started being all sorts of uh, promiscuous, and there's all this, this stuff going on that was just this gross infidelity before God. And Moses and the leaders are are lamenting this, and they're, they're weeping, and they're repenting before God, and this guy comes walking by them with a, with a foreign woman, and he's walking by, and he walks right by him, and he goes into his tent with her. And you can let your imagination go to what's happening here, and, and Phineas sees this happen, he picks up a spear, he goes into the tent, and he puts it through the guy's back, through the woman, and kills both of them. He brings God's judgment on this gross infidelity. It's insane when you think about it. So this same Phineas, years later, is now sent to deal with these people. So I don't know, like, if it's me and I see Phineas coming, like, I know there's a problem. Like, we've got issues. This, this bad dude priest is coming. We, we've got a problem. So they send Phineas and these leaders to go and confront what they think is infidelity on the part of these two and a half tribes for building this altar, And Israel is right to do so. Remember Achan and his sin? Phineas brings that up and he says, how can you do this? How can you build this altar? When God has said not to do this, how can you go and do this? Do you remember what Achan did? And he caused this sin where we all got in trouble because of him. And if you look at these various things that Phineas says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this and turn away from the Lord and alter in rebellion like this? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. Remember, sin is not only individual. It's always connected to the body in some way. And he just unloads on them and says, how can you do this? The heart of what's happening here to me and what they're concerned about is is not just that, that worship can only happen in one specific geographic location. God had set that up for a reason. God had set up worship in this this one place for a reason. It was to protect the people. It was to bring them into this sanctuary, this safe land that they had cleansed. If you think about it, the borders, you know, within this it was supposed to be a cleansed area, and then there was a cleansed tabernacle area where they were supposed to come and worship. It was for their own good, Moses says, we're going to do this so that you don't intermarry with these other people, so you don't start worshipping these idols. And what happens, though, in Israel's history? It's exactly what they do. They start worshipping all over the place. They start pursuing these idols. They start intermarrying. And if you look at the book of Judges, which comes right after this, it has fallen apart completely. The people have wandered away from corporate worship. They've wandered away from going to the tabernacle and going before God in that way. Ultimately, what it's about is devotion to one God. it's about a little bit of, uh, our, our Americanism hates this, it's a little bit about order. And it's a little bit about structure and saying, there's, there's a way that this should be, which was for their own sake. Now, we come to this as New Testament Christians, right? And we think, well, didn't Jesus tell the woman at the well, you know, do we worship on this mountain or this mountain? Remember, he said, well, we're going to worship in spirit and in truth. That day is coming and is now here when we'll worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Does that mean, then, that we don't gather? Does that mean we don't have one place? What what does this mean? Well, I think, yeah, it means that we have the spirit of God within us, which means that we can worship anywhere. Anywhere. We can worship anywhere because God dwells inside of us as Christ followers. Now, again, our our rugged individualism will say, great, I'm just going to go worship God anywhere that I choose. I can worship God in nature. I can worship him uh, while I'm driving my car. Yeah, absolutely you can. Absolutely you can. We're also called to worship him in truth. So is it all about truth? Is it all about one location? Is it all about anywhere? And I think the gospel calls us to something more than that doesn't mean we can go and do whatever we want. It doesn't mean that there's only one right way either. It doesn't mean there's only one right version of scripture either when Jesus says truth. It's actually bigger than that. We are called to worship him with everything that we are. Every moment of the day through his spirit. It's not just it's not just for me anywhere that I choose. It's it's for him and he has made his we are his temple now, remember? And the spirit dwells inside of us. So it's no longer a temple that we have to go to. God is now in us. And it's given us freedom to worship him anywhere. But we are called to worship him with all of our lives. So in a sense, we don't necessarily just have freedom to not worship at the temple. Uh, We have freedom from all sorts of religious laws, things we have to do, and obligations. Yet... We have to worship him with all of our lives now because of his spirit. We get to. So if in the Old Testament there was one day of the week that they would go to the temple or one time a year or they had to give, you know, 10% was required of them or certain things were dedicated to God, now God says, I'm going to inhabit you. I get all of it. So in a sense, it it hasn't gotten to total freedom. It's gotten to total devotion to the Lord. Very interesting concept, especially in light of our our individualism that says, well, I can get to go and do whatever I want now. Well, the gospel actually calls to a complete dedication to the Lord, a complete devotion to the Lord, which in light of his goodness to us, starts to come more naturally as we follow him and and become, uh, if we understand his love more and more, it changes our behavior. I want to say this. I grew up, and I don't know what kind of environment you grew up in, but I grew up in an environment where I was like, I don't want to get dressed up for church. I don't even want to go to church. And my parents' answer, I, I, lo- I love my parents. <laughs> my parents' answer was, well, you have to. You have to. This is what we do. You have to go to church. Please understand, that is not what I'm calling us to today. That is dead religion. That is obligation. What I'm calling us to is to be so enraptured with God's grace and so in love with, with the person of God and his devotion towards us through the gospel that we, we want to do this. That we want to gather together. And this is a foretaste of heaven. This this one day a week that we get together to worship is a foretaste of what we will do for all of eternity. In God's presence, where we worship Him endlessly. So why would we not one day a week just commit to be together and, and remind each other of, of who God is and who God is for us and His devotion to us? So if if you come here because we have to, you're missing it. We come here because we want to. We come here because we have an option, an, a, an opportunity to receive the blessing of God, and to bless him in return with our worship. So, to wrap up this part, Israel was, was right to be upset that it looked like these tribes were going to worship God somewhere else, that they were trying to come up with their own religion. And They were right to go after that. And they were right to say that we need to gather around the temple. That's what God has called us to. Our call today is to gather around the gospel, is to congregate around the gospel and to encourage each other in that weekly through, through worship service like this and through our community groups. Okay, so, God's devotion to us, our devotion to him in worship, and then it turns into our devotion to one another. All right, this plays out for one another as well. If you, if you read on, the, the tribes respond and they say, look, in, in, before God, as our witness, this is not what we are doing. We are not trying to set up another altar for sacrifices, We know what Moses told us, and we are not going to set up this for uh, sacrifices. It's not going to be another religion. We're not worshiping idols here. But what we see here is the consequence of their earlier decision. Remember what I said? They can live in God's blessing, and God can provide for them, but there's still a consequence. Well, what is it? In their case, it was fear. They had left the people of Israel. They're leaving the promised land, and they start to feel the separation. And they realize, oh, no, this is going to get bad. So if you look, if you look at the, the leader's words in verse 24, why did they build this altar? They said, We did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, What do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us, and you, you Reubenites and Gadites, you have no share in the Lord. Do you hear that fear? So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. You read on. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord, verse 28. And we said, if they ever say this, there's all this if. What if this happens? This might happen. What if this happens? We're scared, we're scared, we're scared. So they build this altar as a result of the consequence of their decision to separate from God's promise. So they weren't trying to set up a sacrificial system. They were trying to set up a remembering system. To remember who they were in the Lord. And to remind Israel, the tribes that they were leaving, to remind them, hey, don't forget that we belong to you. Don't forget that we're from you. Honestly, they should have thought of that back in Numbers when they said, we don't want to be with you anymore. Right? So they're living out the consequence of their decision. And God has provided for them and he has grace on them, but there's still consequences for our decisions. and really what's at stake here what's what's at the core of this is that they were realizing that they couldn't worship god without family they couldn't worship god without the community and yet israel the community is coming and saying you can't worship god without fidelity without being devoted to him so it's kind of two sides of the same coin. Like I said, this is like Bay of Pigs. They're ready, They're ready, and this thing is escalating to the place of violence, yet really they're both talking about a very similar thing on, on the same coin of being dedicated to one another and dedicated to God. So they need, they need this, this way back in. So they make this altar of remembrance, and it says so that they named it, this will be a witness between us that we can come back in and worship God because we're part of you. Now, my take from this for us today is that we, we need one another to worship. Like just as, much, just as much as we are called to be centered around the gospel and we congregate around that on a weekly basis and, and, and in our community groups, we need one another to do that. Because on our own, this is what we tend to do. We tend to think, I've got it. I can do this. I don't need anybody. I've got it all myself. That's one form of religion. Or we think, you know what? I don't want to be vulnerable with anybody. I don't want to share with anybody. I don't want anybody really to know what's going on in my life But the truth is, if we remember that we are all under God's grace, whether good, bad, indifferent, made mistakes, been perfect, we're all under God's grace, it allows us the ability to go into community and say, okay, this is who I am. This is who I am. These are the mistakes that I've made. This is what I've got going on in my life. And then we gospel one another. And we bring the truth of God through the Spirit to one another. It takes humility to do that. It takes being honest with who we are to do that. So if you truly truly believe God's devotion to you, it will help you comprehend how you can be devoted to others and what you need from them and what they need from you. If you look in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews is an incredible book written to kind of Jewish background believers. But if you look in, in chapter 10 of Hebrews, the author is, is talking to these people and he's saying, look, you're waiting for the Lord to return and you're getting tired and it looks like he's still a long way off and you're being persecuted and the culture around you is shifting radically and you're thinking, well, maybe we should go back to the old sacrifice, the sacrificial system. Maybe we should do that again. And the author's encouraging them saying No. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus has gone before you and made this sacrifice once and for all. You can come into God's presence. God is with you. But look what he says in chapter 10. If you look at 19, he says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Listen to what he says. Let us draw near to God with sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. So what the author is setting up here is God's goodness towards us. Despite the fact that we, we are sinful, we've been washed, we've been cleansed, we, we can now be in God's presence and God can be with us. And then in verse 24, he says this, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Meaning, as you see the day of the Lord, with his return approaching, we are called to do these three things. To encourage one another, to spur one another on, and to to meet together. You see, they were, they were feeling like, well, we don't know what's going to happen. We're overwhelmed. We're tired. We don't even really need to meet together. And the author's saying, no, 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 no. You have to do that. That is what's going to help you hold unswervingly to the hope of Jesus. Being together helps you hold on to the truth of the gospel. Now, I know, <laughs> trust me, I am human. There are times when I'm like, I would rather sleep in today. Trust me. Uh, there are times when we have community group and I'm like, I would rather just sit and watch football. Right? I mean, we, we all feel this, right? And, and I think what we need to, to remember is, that, is that, that our flesh feeds off of that and our spirit feeds off of being together. And, and, and our body is at war, our flesh is at war with the spirit within us and sometimes we have to tell our, our bodies, you know what? It's time for you to be quiet. This is what is, the full life is offered for me in this. I'm going to go and I'm going to engage in community. And I'm going to train myself to go and do this. And I can tell you 99 times out of 100 when I have forced myself and disciplined myself to say, you know what, this is good for me, this is good for my spirit, this is good for my soul, it's been amazing. And God has spoken to me through it, it's been something that I didn't want to hear, but God spoke to me anyway through community group or or through being at church together. We are called to be with one another. And it helps us connect to God and, and remember his devotion to us. Church, our job is is, or our our gospel obligation rather, is to love one another and to gospel one another. I need you to gospel me, and you need the same. And we do that for one another. And I've had many people do that in my life through through community groups to where Jess and I have been struggling with something and somebody says, you know, you guys, you guys are thinking about this in the wrong way. Not in a judgmental way, but in a way that helps us hold unswervingly to the hope in Jesus that says, you know what, this is who you are in the gospel. This is who Jesus says you are. There was a woman I worked with uh, before who, she discipled me so much because, you know what, she could ask good questions. She just asked really good questions. Women, I, I will stereotype here and say, you are incredibly intuitive don't be afraid to ask good questions and then bring people to the gospel and bring people to the truth of the gospel. And you're not going to get that being alone. You're just not. You're not. And it's the same reason God told the Israelites, don't go off and do this on your own. Come to me. Come and rally around the gospel with one another. So I would encourage you, grab some invitations, invite people to Easter so they can come and hear this. Be here with us and celebrate. You know, every week we do this. It's kind of a mini Easter. Easter. Celebration of, of who Jesus is in us. Easter's a big day. Invite people to it. Let people hear this freedom of the gospel that they can experience. And if you want to be part of a community group to where you can gospel one another and be part of this, come and talk to me. Come and talk to Pastor Adam because it's good. It is good for us. It is life-giving to be in the gospel together. So my prayer is, is that we would do that, that we would be a church who, who is so Enraptured with God's devotion to us, that that it turns back into devotion to Him, and back into devotion to one another. So remember this this passage. Remember this uh, this story about God's devotion towards us. Let's pray.